Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, it has been said that the three greatest words in the English language are the words, I love you. And I think that's true. Those are powerful words. But I would argue that the four greatest words in the English language are these. Let's read these together. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Because if I were to say, if we were to say, once upon a time, we would be signaling that we are about to start what? We are about to start a story. And let's be real. If there's anything that we humans cannot resist, we cannot resist a good story. Amen? Amen. This is true from an early age. Uh, one of my favorite memories from childhood was going to the library on Saturday morning uh, with my mom and my siblings. And uh, we would check out a whole bunch of books, and then we would read all those books during the week. Uh, we would pile on the couch with my mom, my brother, my sister, and she would read us um, story after story after story, all those books that we had checked out from the library on Saturday. And now as the parents of five-year-old twins, uh, my wife Amanda and I, uh, we share in the same ritual with our own children, Hannah and Noah. We have a picture of this. Uh, we go to the library on Saturday. In fact, we did this just yesterday. Uh, we get a whole bunch of books, and then we read those books during the week, generally at nighttime, just before bed. Kids love stories, don't they? But it's not just kids who love stories. We adults love them too. If I were to stand up here this morning and say to you, okay, for the next 25 minutes, I'm going to talk about the Christology of the fourth gospel, or I'm going to talk about Paul's understanding of anthropology or eschatology, or I'm going to talk about the ethical implications of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, there is a good possibility that at some point you might start wiggling in your seat, maybe glancing at your phone, uh, wondering when the sermon might be over, and wondering what you're going to have for lunch today. But if I were to say, hey, listen, here's a really powerful story. Here's a really inspiring, convicting story that illustrates this point that I'm trying to make. Well, your whole demeanor would change. Uh, you would perk up in your seat and pay more attention. There is no question that we humans are hardwired and built for stories, aren't we? Our favorite TV shows, movies, books, they are centered around good stories. Stories inspire us. Stories move us. Stories compel us. They engage us. Stories break down complex ideas and help us express the inexpressible. Is it any wonder, then, that a central feature of Jesus' public ministry was the telling of stories? Folks, if anybody knew how to tell a good story, Jesus did. And what do we call the stories that Jesus told? What do we call the stories that Jesus told? We call them parables. And scholars estimate that we have anywhere from 30 to 40 parables from Jesus in the first three Gospels. 
What are the first three Gospels? The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. There are no parables in the Gospel of John, as far as we can tell. They're all found in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, we have anywhere from 30 to 40 parables, uh, depending on who's considering it a parable, uh, in those first three Gospels. Now, we call them parables, but, but what's a parable? Well, the English word parable is a transliteration of the Greek word. Keep in mind that the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word parabola, which means to cast alongside. Essentially, a parable involves placing two things side by side for comparison. Sort of like, well, if you can't understand this, then this other thing over here is really similar to that. If you can't understand the kingdom of God, well, the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is like what? It's like a farmer scattering seeds. Or if you can't understand God, well, God is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And what happened to one of those sheep? It got lost. Or God is like a woman who had ten coins. And what happened to one of those coins? The coin became missing. God is like a father who had two sons. And one day the younger son came to his dad and he said, Dad, I want my share of the estate now before you're dead. God and the kingdom of God, which go beyond understanding, beyond comprehension, inexpressible, they're being explained through these everyday concrete images. Images that would have been familiar to the people of Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. Now, even though some of these images that we find in the parables might not be as familiar to us, uh, we probably don't have a whole lot of farmers or shepherds among us, I'm assuming. I could be wrong, but that's my assumption. There is no doubt that the truths contained within these stories are timeless. Amen? They are timeless and thus demand our attention. And so with all this being said, starting this morning here at Asbury, uh, we are diving into a new preaching series on the parables called Stories Jesus Told. Stories Jesus Told. Our focus in these messages will be dissecting some key parables so that we can unravel their layers of meaning and come to better understand the profound spiritual truths woven into them by Jesus. Sound pretty good to you? And what better way to kick off this new preaching series, what better way to start this new sermon series than with one of the most unsettling stories that Jesus ever told? And what story is that? That would be the story of the vineyard workers. You ever heard this one before? And the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to listen carefully to these words from Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 16. Uh, these words are up here on the screen. And of course, uh, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus starts in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven. Now typically in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God is called the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is like, remember, what's a parable? A parable involves placing two things side by side for comparison. The kingdom of heaven is being compared to something else. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. 
At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foremen to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. We Floridians know a thing or two about heat, don't we? Amen? He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? And then Jesus ends by saying this, so those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jesus knew how to tell a good story, didn't he? Like any good story, think of all the stories that you're familiar with. Like any good story, this story elicits an emotional response. Only the response a lot of us feel when we hear this story, it's not happiness, it's not gratitude. What is it? That's unfair. It bothers us. It annoys us. It puts us off. Can we be honest about this? When he was the dean of Duke University Chapel in North Carolina, Will Willimon, who later became a United Methodist bishop, um, he was preaching on this passage one Sunday morning. Well, when the service was over, he was standing at the door. He was receiving people in the line. And this student from Duke came up to him and said, Well, Pastor, I want you to know, I was really bothered by that story that you shared in your message. That is just not the way to treat people. It is wrong to pay people who only work for an hour the same amount of money as those who work the whole day in the scorching heat. Well, mom was kind of flustered, and he said, Well, wait a minute. You do realize that story is not original to me. I didn't make that story up. That story is found in Matthew. Matthew, the student said. Yeah, Matthew. It's a book in the Bible. Jesus told that story. Oh, I see, the student said. Well, I still don't like it. That still doesn't make it right. So even though this story is in the Bible, even though this story comes from none other than the Son of God himself, for some of us, maybe a lot of us, it's still off-putting. It challenges our basic notions of fairness, doesn't it? And how we think this world should run. People who work long hours should get more money than those who work less hours. It's just common sense. And to be clear, it's not just us who think this way. The disciples thought this way too. You see, one thing we have to understand about the parables and we're going to see this more and more throughout these messages. One thing we have to understand about the parables is this, and when you read the parables and the Gospels, you'll notice this. 
Jesus hardly ever told parables randomly. He hardly ever told them randomly. Instead, sorry for the typo here, instead, he usually told them in response to a situation that had come up or a comment that somebody had made. And this parable is no exception. So this parable is found in Matthew 20. Well, one chapter earlier, and I would encourage you to read this passage when you go home later today. One chapter earlier in Matthew 19, um, Jesus is approached by a rich young ruler. Do you remember the story? It's not just found in Matthew. It's also found in Mark, and I believe it's also found in the Gospel of Luke. Well, he's approached by this rich young ruler, and the rich young man asked Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, you got to keep the commandments. You know the Ten Commandments? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Oh, also love your neighbor. And the man says, well, I've kept all these commandments. I've obeyed them. He probably estimates that he's kept them better than he actually has. And Jesus says, okay, here's what I want you to do next. Go home, liquidate your assets, give all the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me. And what happens next? Do you remember? The man walks away depressed because he had a lot of possessions. This is actually one of the few instances in the Gospels in which Jesus invites somebody to be a disciple. He extends an invitation to discipleship, but the person doesn't receive it. The person rejects it because of money. And so Jesus, being the teacher-preacher that he was, he uses this as an opportunity to talk about the difficulty of those who are attached to their money to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, after he says all this, notice what Peter says next. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter said to him, that is Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Folks, isn't that always the question? The question that is on our mind? What will we get? What will I get? Hey, mom and dad, what will I get if I finish all my chores? Will I get an allowance? You ever been asked that question before? Will I get certain privileges, maybe a later bedtime? What will I get if I go to school for a long time, college, graduate school, and I get all these degrees? Will I get a good job? Will I make a lot of money? What will I get if I work really hard in my career and I impress my boss? Will I get a raise? Will I get a promotion? Will others take notice? What will I get if I do X, Y, and Z? What's in it for me? You see, as humans, we have been conditioned by this world to think in terms of merit. If I do this, then I am entitled to receive that, whatever that is. I remember when I was in college, I had an English class, and my writing wasn't very strong, and so I wasn't receiving the grades that I wanted to be making. And then about halfway through the semester, the professors started handing out extra credit assignments. Who loved extra credit assignments when they were in school, right? Only this professor was purposely vague. She was vague on purpose about how much extra credit each assignment would offer us. 
She basically said, well, do the assignment, and we'll figure this out later on at the end of the semester. I didn't like that very much. So what did I do? Well, not knowing how much extra credit I was going to get, I just did all of them. Not because I wanted to. I didn't want to do all that extra credit. But I was hoping, I had this assumption, okay, if I do all this extra work, she's going to recognize my efforts. She's going to reward me with the grade that I'm seeking. I was thinking in terms of merit. I do this, I'm entitled to receive that. Peter was thinking in these terms. Okay, Lord, this rich guy, he doesn't want to give up his stuff. Well, what about us disciples? We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? And at first, Jesus actually seems to accommodate where Peter is coming from. Because check out his response. This is verses 28 and 29. Jesus replied to Peter, I assure you that when the world is made new, and the Son of Man, when Jesus says Son of Man, he's referring to himself, when the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, in other words, he's talking about the end of the age, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive what? Let's say this together. A hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. A hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. A hundred times as much? Eternal life? The very thing that the rich man was asking for? That's pretty good. Would you take that? I'll take that in a heartbeat. But just when Peter and the disciples are getting ready to daydream about this future inheritance, what does Jesus do? <laughs> he complicates everything. He completely throws a wrench in these plans. This is verse 30. But, somebody say but. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. In other words, Jesus is saying, you disciples, yeah, you're going to get your reward one day. Don't worry about it. But don't be fooled. In the final assessment, when this is all said and done, there are going to be surprises. People who don't seem that great right now will be very great then. And just before Peter or the other disciples can raise questions, objections, Jesus launches into a story. Remember, he didn't tell stories randomly usually, but because of all this, he launches into the story, the parable of the vineyard workers. Once upon a time, Jesus says. Okay, he didn't say once upon a time, I'm paraphrasing. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a vineyard. And one day, he went to the marketplace, and he found some men. This was about, I don't know, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, early in the morning, and he hired these men to work in the fields, and he agreed to pay them a denarii, a day's wage. Well, then around 9 o'clock in the morning, a few hours later, there was still more work to be done. So he went to the marketplace, he found some more men, and he hired these men. Only, he didn't agree to pay them a day's wage. Instead, listen to what Jesus says. This is uh, verse 4 of chapter 20. Can we pull this up? There we go. So he, the landowner, hired them, that is the 9 a.m. workers, telling them he would pay them what? Whatever was right at the end of the day. Sounds like my professor, doesn't it? 
Let's be vague about this. This landowner kept these men in the dark. They knew that they would make some money. They had no idea how much money they would be making. And then the guy does this with the people that he hires at noontime, at 3 o'clock, and then finally at 5 o'clock just before quitting hour. And then it came time to paying these workers. They got paid the same day. And the foreman started with the guys who had worked just an hour or so. And he paid them what? He paid them a full day's wage. And so we can imagine these other workers uh, down over here who have been working all day in the heat, they're probably saying to themselves, oh my goodness, did you see what just happened? These guys barely worked an hour and they got a full day's wage. Imagine what you and I are about to get paid. This is going to be real good. Only much to their shock, they got the same amount of money. What gives? This isn't fair. And the landowner says, hey, time out. Didn't I say that I would pay you a day's wage? I haven't cheated you out of anything. And if I want to be generous with my resources, my money, that's my prerogative, not yours. Folks, what's going on here? Jesus did not tell this parable to instruct us on how to run a business. Jesus did not tell this parable, we have this up on the screen, to instruct us on how to run a business. Jesus told us this parable to challenge our sense of entitlement and explain how life in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God operates. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God does not operate on merit. It operates on what? It operates on grace, which means, practically speaking, somebody like Mother Teresa, who devoted her whole life to serving God, in the very end, she will receive the same inheritance as somebody who squanders their life, wastes their life, and yet turns to God in the very end. And if that's off-putting to us, it might be because we're thinking in terms of merit instead of thinking in terms of grace. But there's a second reason why this might be off-putting to us. It might be because we are overlooking what is perhaps the most important line in this story. What is the most important line in this story? The line that should just jump off the page, grab our attention, and put everything into perspective. It's found in verses 6 and 7. Listen one more time. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he, the landowner, was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. It's not as if these men didn't want to be working. Nobody had hired them. Who knows, maybe they were older. Maybe they were disabled. Maybe they were really bad at manual labor like me. But for whatever reason, they had gone that whole day without getting hired, while everybody else around them was being offered employment. There's something sad about that, isn't there? When I was 13 years old, I had a summer job. Not many businesses will hire you when you're 13 years old, but this one business decided to hire me. Uh, it was a bagel shop on Commercial Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I grew up. My job was to be what was called the bagel boy. Uh, I would stand outside 
wearing a plastic bagel costume and waved to cars as they were driving on Commercial Boulevard trying to encourage them to come to the bagel shop and get a bagel, get a cup of coffee, something like that. And then when my shift was over, I would do this for about an hour, the owner would pay me whatever was right, whatever she felt like paying me from the cash register that day. Sometimes I'd get $4, one time I got $10, and I was really happy about that. Well, I had been saving up money. I wanted this sports watch from Target. My family was planning on going on vacation later that summer, and I wanted to make sure I had that sports watch before we left for vacation so that all the people I saw on vacation would see me wearing the sports watch and just know how cool I am, how cool the bagel boy really was. I finally had enough money. And my mom said to me, okay, I'm going to take you to Target today, later today. So I'm coming home from work. It was about, I don't know, 8.30 in the morning or so. I'm on my bike. I'm rounding the corner to the street where we lived, and from a distance, I saw my dad's car in the driveway. I thought, well, that's weird. He should be at work right now. I parked my bike in front of the house. I walked inside the living room. I immediately noticed my father sitting on the living room chair, wearing his suit. His briefcase was on the ground. He had this defeated look on his face. My mom was standing just above him, trying to reassure him. She had this worried look, too. I could just feel the tension in the room. And finally, I just blurted out, what's going on? Is everything okay? And my mom said, no, it's not. Your father just lost his job. Listen, I promised to take it to Target today. I'll take it to Target. You can get that watch, but... I'm sorry, we have to immediately cancel this vacation. We don't have any money for trips right now. Things are going to have to get tight. That was a tough summer for our family. There's something sad about losing a job, isn't there? Some of you have been there before. There's something sad about not getting work when everybody else around you is getting hired. So instead of resenting these workers for receiving the same amount of pay, we should feel compassion and empathy that they went for as long as they did without work. And in the same way Jesus is saying to us, Jesus is saying to you, he's saying to me, we should feel compassion and empathy for those who have gone their whole life not knowing God, not knowing the joy that comes with being God's child, God's son, God's daughter, living as a disciple of Jesus Christ in this world. Do you remember what prompted the telling of this parable in the first place? It was the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who, as far as the world could tell, that guy had everything. But as far as Jesus was concerned, he was one of those unhired hands who even at 5 o'clock in the afternoon was still looking for work. In other words, still looking for meaning, still looking for purpose, still looking for wholeness, still looking for life. There are a lot of folks like that. Christopher Parkney, considered by many to be the world's greatest classical guitarist, achieved his musical dreams by the age of 30. By then, he was also a world-class fly-fishing champion. However, Parkney's success failed to bring him happiness. Weary of performances and recording sessions, Parkney bought a ranch. He gave up on the guitar, but instead of finding happiness after getting away from it all, his life became increasingly empty void of meaning. 
This is what he wrote. If you arrive at a point in your life where you have everything that you've ever wanted and thought would make you happy, and it still doesn't, then you start questioning things. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I had that, and I thought, what's left? While visiting friends, Christopher Parkdean attended a church. He heard the pastor's message. He was convicted by the pastor's message and decided to put his faith and his hope and his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He later said this, I have a joy, a peace, and a deep down fulfillment in my life I never had before. My life has purpose. I've learned firsthand the true secret of genuine happiness. For the longest time, Christopher Parkdean was that unhired hand until he heard the voice of Jesus Christ say to him, what are you doing standing around? I have a job for you. I have an assignment for you. Come and work in my kingdom. Should we resent the fact that he'll have the same inheritance as somebody who came to God much earlier? Of course not. Jesus did not tell this parable to stir up resentment. He told this parable to teach us and remind us, well, first off, to challenge our sense of entitlement and to remind us that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God does not operate on merit, it operates on grace. And we should feel compassion and empathy for those who have not yet responded to the gospel message. The truth is, folks, it doesn't matter when we come to Jesus. If we come to Jesus early on in life, if we come to Jesus much later, maybe on our deathbed, None of us are where we are because we've earned it. None of us are where we are because we deserve it. We are only there because of grace. This grace knows no limits. It knows no bounds. And it is always looking, even late into the day, for that unhired hand. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, forgive us for our entitlement. Forgive me for my own. Remind us, God, that your kingdom doesn't operate on merit. It operates on grace. None of us come into a relationship with you. None of us receive anything because we've earned it or deserve it, but only by your grace. Teach us, God, that this grace is for everybody. And help us to join you in your mission of looking for the unhired hand so that we might invite that person, those people, into life with you to be a part of your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.